to open up to the book of James, chapter 1, where we will continue in our series. Uh, if you weren't here last week, the passage that we were in, if I could summarize it, it would be something like this, that, that we are to be men and women of action and not just talk. That we are to look intently into God's perfect law the same way we'd, we would look intently into a mirror. With a, with an eye for change and with an intent to actually change it. And not just action, like random action, but head-informed, Christ-exalting action. So we're not just willy-nilly running around doing good works uh, frantically, but rather we're exalting Christ by it. I came across a, qu- a quote this week that summarizes some of what we talked about last week. It says this, Vision without action is merely a dream. Action without vision just passes the time. Vision with action can change the world. Now, how many of you have gone to a graduation sometime in the last month or two? Raise your hand. Let me see your hands. Okay. Today, I have a hunch will be a little bit maybe like I anticipate my kids' high school graduation to be. I'm not quite there yet. But I imagine that high school graduation day for parents will be something like this. There will be a certain sadness and there will be a hardness to the day because it's kind of closing a chapter. But there will also be this anticipation and this looking forward saying, man, this is a whole new era, though, for for my kid. And it's a benchmark, so to speak. And I I look at this morning and I was I was praying about this passage and so excited to um, to finally get here. Um, And I think this morning has the potential to be that same sort of a way, kind of like a graduation for a parent. I think there might, it might be kind of a hard day in some ways, and I think that will be really good. And I also want it to be an encouragement and, a, and an exciting thing in terms of just uh, looking, looking forward to, to some things God may have for us and what's next. Um, some of you have been, uh, have been diligently soaking in James uh, for a long time, maybe years and years, and the passage that we're going to come to is quite possibly the quintessential passage on this topic of orphans and widows. And it's thrown out so often that I think sometimes, those of us who have been raised in the church, those of us who have heard it a bunch, um, we can, as Ben preached a couple of weeks ago, we can jump to conclusions. I've heard this taught. I know we're supposed to do some things. My prayer this morning is that God's word would just fall fresh on us, that we would just open up his words, that we would just simply read it and simply receive what it says and be open to what God is saying through it. Look at James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, let me just say that this morning, um, as, as one of the pastors here at this church, I love that I get to talk to you people about this. And I love that our church is not a church where we come to this passage in Scripture and we get to this kind of uncomfortable topic because we're not doing anything about it and we're just sitting around and I have to somehow kind of drum up, man, we should really be doing stuff. Let me tell you a part of what this morning's about. It is going to be a party. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to be lifting up and saying, look at what God is doing in our midst. Some of you are new enough that you don't know some of the amazing things that are going on uh, in and through the people that come and gather here every week. And so on the one hand, it really is this celebration and, and a, 
um, and a thank you, God, for, for the things that you're doing in our midst with this, and a call for more. I believe there's more. Um, I, we, we have dreams as Christians that are outlandish and that God has to come through on uh, or else they're just they're just from us, right? And we have the capacity to to do to do more. And so and so it's going to be a a mix of both of these. Now, some of you really like James because James is a realist, and he simply does this with things. He simply calls out the falsehood that's there and doesn't let it just sit on the table. And some of you really like that because that's the kind of people you are. You say, man. There's something funky in the air, and we need to find it. And until it's there, I can't relate to you. I can't just keep going on, uh, same old, same old. Um, I, I think about the prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus and the prophets and John the Baptist all had this way of stirring things up, right? These voices that kind of come on the landscape, they come along, though, and they call things out. They say, this is black and this is white. And it's usually a prophetic voice that does that. And James certainly is that. He says essentially this, that true worship is more than listening to truth statements or even speaking truth statements. That's verses 20 through to 22 to 25 that we just looked at a couple weeks back. True worship is more than formal religious rituals, whether that be words or clothing or posture. Remember the fake cowboys from last year? Giant belt buckle does not make you a cowboy or good at, at, at hurting things, right? Neither does a tie or casual hip clothing make you today's contemporary Christian in Western America. It's more than posture. It's more than the ritual. It's more than the words that are spoken. Rather, that genuine godliness is, is both unseen and seen. Now, I periodically look at the religious section of things partly because I feel it's my obligation as a pastor. I should probably look and see what these things are like. So I was on USA Today on my phone uh, this week, and I thought I'd check out the religion section. I was once again disappointed by what I found in the, in the religion section. Here is what grabbed the headlines maybe around Monday or Tuesday of this week. It was talking about a preacher who had died from snake handling back in the, in the backwoods of the Appalachian Mountains. And it was talking all about how this preacher you know, died like his father before him because he was testing his faith with handling snakes and believed that handling snakes is the way to do a prayer service. Now, we were, in the, we were just coming off of Pray in May. I was glad I wasn't raised in that tradition, but I also go to the scriptures and say, don't put the Lord your God to the test. I'm just reading this going, that's ludicrous, but it sells papers, right? And it gets you to click on an icon. Next headlines had all to do with the failings of Catholic church leaders. I kept digging, and that's all I saw. Stories about snake handling and failing Catholic church leaders. That was the religion section on that given day. Now, you go to the religious TV section. I don't recommend this in general. Most things that I see on TV that, that are under the guise of religion, usually there's flopping hair, there's you know screaming, there's numbers to send money to, and there's bad theology, terrible theology. Open up your Bible and just quiz yourself one time. Watch 15 minutes of some religious television and just begin to discern, does this seem like this lines up with God's word or not? Not slamming all of it. There's probably good stuff out there, but I'm either not awake or not watching TV when it's on because most of the stuff I see is kind of ludicrous. Go to the religious section at a Barnes & Noble type bookstore, which are fading, by the way, and once again, same sort of thing. And there's, there's all kinds of confusion because so much, right, falls under the religion section. 
I get people, when they hear that I'm a pastor, I almost get, uh, kind of like in Finding Nemo when he finds out he's a clownfish, tell us a joke, you're a clownfish, you're supposed to be funny. I almost get this vibe from people. You're a pastor, do something religious. Well, you know, and what about that? And they'll start asking me these questions, you know, what are the seven tenets of this? And I'm like, I'm not a world religions major. I'm not teaching this. I'm a pastor. Let's sit down and talk about the Bible and the power of the Holy Spirit and walking with Jesus. Um, I was on a field trip with my son one time. We're down at a mission. And the teacher turns to me and says, I'm sure you know all about this. And I'm like, well, no, I've just been reading this plaque. So I did discover a few tips. But what are you talking about? She meant that because I was a pastor, I must know all about the California mission system. Now, with multiple kids going through my school system, I'm starting to get a good handle on it. So if you have questions, come talk to me. But here's the point. There's just so much confusion, isn't there? When someone hears you're a Christian, you have to quantify and clarify what that means because they might immediately say, well, so am I. And in your head, you're like, yeah, but no. I mean, it's different than being American. Right? Or it's different than, you know, than, than, than maybe, uh, you're thinking on that. If you spend your whole life mining, it doesn't matter too much if you've got a whole stockpile of stuff if it's fool's gold. Would you agree with that? Some of you have been out mining and stuff and seen the gold country and all of that. Um, l- listen to this passage and just think about, think about the, the trap it is. And I'm not trying to say it's an us and them. It's a trap for us as well. If we're not dialed in today, we have the capacity to veer off course very, very quickly. Listen to the stockpiled fool's gold of a Pharisee that Jesus talks about in Luke 18. Here's what he says as Jesus is telling uh, two two, uh, different people. Here's the Pharisee looking up to heaven. He says this, I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of my and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, Jesus contrasts that, of course, with a tax collector, right, who's bowed down low and humbly seeking God's face. James contrasts that kind of worthless religion, the stockpiling of more and more fool's gold, and then bragging on all the fool's gold that we might have with pure and undefiled religion, priceless worship. And here's what he points to, social action, moral action. And the common thread in there is action, right? More than talk, more than posturing, more than knowing, more than memorizing. Here's the question for you and I, is how much left, how much, how much room does James leave for the moderate here in, in, in our passage today? The moderate Christian, the temperate Christian, right? Here's what it seems like he's doing. He seems like he's taking the middle ground and he's just swallowing it up with two very, very blunt statements. And it reminds me of this, hot or cold, hot or not. That's it. You're lukewarm. It's repulsive to me. I spit you out of my mouth. I don't want moderate, temperate Christians. Now, here's our cowboys dumb. If you're taking notes, you can fill this in. Uh, This is our cowboys dumb for the week. You're a cowboy. You know the task at hand, okay? The call is unmistakable for a Christian. Now, here it is. Quite simply, get her done. And you have to spell it that way. you got to spell it G-I-T. That's how it's spelt down there. And use the apostrophe. All right. 
Um, three areas of likeness. I'm going to give you three areas of likeness, three ways of how we care. You can write these into your notes if you'd like. There are some questions for you and your community group or you and your family to go through later on in the week. But here they are. Um, like father, like son, or like child. Uh, here's the three areas. Speech, social action, and moral action. Jesus, or, or the Bible says over and over that we are God's offspring, that God is our father, that we are being fathered by almighty God. And that's a powerful metaphor to think about. Uh, Jesus also tells us that we are to, to put off the old and to put on the new person of Christ. We're new creatures in Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to touch on these three areas of likeness that James puts forth. And I want to give you um, a simple Something that God loves under each of these and something that God hates under each of these, okay? And you can kind of write those in. We sang this song last week, God, break my heart with the things that break yours. Remember singing that, some of you, okay? So this is the kind of thing we look for in these different areas. What does God love in this? What does God hate in this so that it, it can inform mine? Now, there's an, there's an interesting link to know how things are going on internally uh, to the, the rest of the world. One of the challenges is to get into the psyche of people and the emotion of people and the experience of people and wonder how things are going. Spiritually, you may wonder sometimes, I wonder how I'm doing. I wonder if I'm really a Christian. We're to test ourselves. We're to examine ourselves. Those are good questions to ask. Here's the link. There's a link and it's called the tongue. The things that we speak flow out of the heart. Jesus made that perfectly clear. Look at verse 26. And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. Here's the first likeness. We are like the Father in our speech. Here's what God loves with speech is truth. God loves truth and God hates lies. So, as a Christian, as one who is following after their father, mimicking their father. There's a little quiz on the screen right now. It should be easy to line up the left column with the right column, right? We're not confused of whose father is who, right? Who's, who's bearing out who. And so in our speech, do we love the truth? Not just truth with the words, but truth in our inner, in, in our inner self. One of the things that we have, we all have the capacity to do is to be a, a hypocrite. A hypocrite says this, they say things about their life. I would come forth and say things about my inner life that simply aren't true. Don't you see that sometimes you can say that enough, you just keep going over and over and over with it, that it becomes truth in your mind? You, 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 you almost convince yourself by saying the right thing so often. And once in a while, God comes along and just kind of smacks you upside the head and says, but, but that's not even true. You've been kind of sharing this story or this experience or this life that isn't even real. I've had those moments and they're shocking to me. Where I say, whoa, God, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. God desires the truth in our inmost being. God desires the truth to come pouring out of our mouth. God desires for us to hate falsehood. You could hear it in Kel's voice that, that there are... There are forces in this world that are, that are not only disregarding or ignoring God, but, but opposed to God. And those are falsehoods and those are lies. Lying to yourself or lying to others is the language of Satan. He's the father of lies. So when I perpetually lie, if that is my natural go-to state, and the father of all lies is Satan. 
That's a penetrating picture, isn't it? Rather than the truth and to love truth and to pursue truth and to fight for truth. Here's the second one. Uh, let me give you a couple of quick verses. Ephesians 4.25 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak the truth in love. Some of you struggle with the truth part. You think the most loving thing to do is to never confront. It's not. Some of you just love the truth part and neglect the in love part. And you're truth dispensers and you don't have any friends because all you do is blast people with things. There's a way to do it in a gracious way, but you say, I'm committed to the truth and to do it in a loving way. Listen to Luke 6.45. What you say flows from what is in your heart. There's plenty more in James about the power of the tongue. He's going to talk about a little flame and a forest fire and a rudder and all of that. But here he uses this picture of an unbridled tongue. Now, uh, I happen to know one person in this room at least that may actually do this. But has anyone ever broken a horse or spent time doing that? I'm looking at you, Terry. Have you? Okay, so we have a couple that, that are at least kind of around that, that vein. An unbridled tongue, think about this. He's kind of using this in the term of, of a wild horse, right? An unbridled tongue, it really leads to an unbridled life. And, and here's what's interesting. Our culture fans the flame of those who have unbridled tongues. You get your own reality show. You often get heralded as one who, wow, good for them. They speak their mind, right? And they just, whatever is on their mouth, it just comes pouring out. And as an, and as an observer, you can sit and just observe what is going on inside that person by what is flowing out of your mouth. So, Enough on the speech. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Verse 27 says, visit orphans and care in their affliction. So not only are we to mimic him in, in uh, speech, but in our care. God loves the vulnerable. God hates bullies. If I could put it quite simply, it's this. God loves the vulnerable and God hates bullies. I thought maybe I should change that to God hates bullying, Right? Hate the sin, love the sinner. But I see places in Scripture where it's the, it's the psalmist crying out saying, God, I hate those who hate you. I'm against those who are against you. And there are bullies in this world that I'm going to peel back a few layers just to kind of give you a little peek about some of the things that are going on in our world. Many of you know more about other things. But God hates that. It's against what he is for. Finally, let me look at holiness. Verse 27 wraps up this way, to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're to mimic our Father in speech, in care, and in holiness. 1 Peter 1.16 says this, It is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here's what God loves. He loves purity. Here's what God hates, sin. We are in dangerous ground, Christian, and we should run to the Lord in confession when we find ourselves cherishing sin. And we've all done it. We're whispered to sin on the front door, and it says, come on over here. This will be fulfilling. Come on over. And we begin to wonder. We begin to cherish. We begin to actually love our sin. God wants to come and obliterate that every single time that it occurs. Because God hates sin. I don't know the worst smell that you've smelled in the last year. But imagine the worst smell you can think of or you've ever smelled in a lifetime. Our sin, the tiniest little bit of our sin, is like that in the nostrils of God. It's repulsive. He can't stand it. He can't look upon it. This is what's such 
great news about the gospel, right? Is that 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we're said to, to keep ourselves unstained for the world, that doesn't mean week and month and year after time, you better not get a stain on you. You know what that message produces? Hypocrites. Because when a stain shows up, we start hiding it. We're like, yeah, I know, I know I'm not supposed to be stained, right? Jesus says, get over here with me with that, and I will cleanse you. So Christian, hear this. The life of a Christian is a life of ongoing repentance over and over and over. The second you find your heart cherishing sin, you run to that with Jesus. You say, God, I was just loving sin more than you. Save me from that. Cleanse me from that. Purify me from that. And we could have hours of testimony of people just saying, yeah, here's how God's done that for me. Here's how God walks with me in that. Now, these three areas, speech, care, and holiness. Honestly, I think I could take these two verses and be booked for a lifetime of trying to live out the Christian life by God's grace. I really do. The mouth, I don't know that that will ever be bridled completely. I'll need help with that the rest of my days. Caring for orphans and widows and the vulnerable and working against bullies, there's a, there's a life's work. Personal holiness, cherishing the things of God, walking in purity, hating sin. Don't you see? I mean, in a couple of verses, if you want to tear out one, one little passage to memorize and bring with you to a, de- you know, a desert island or something, here you go. I mean, this is, a, this is a great passage of Scripture for that. These three become evidence or fruit that you are a Christian, right? Family members have traits from one another. Um, I'm blanking on who even said this yesterday. Oh, I know who it was. I was at a friend's house, and she looks at our daughter, Kaya, and she said, um, she said this. She said, man, she really reminds me of Tegan. And I said, wow, you have nailed it. She has characteristics that, that, are, that are so Tegan-like, our other daughter. Now, if you look at them together, they look a little bit like photo negatives of each other, right? And they just don't look that similar. Um, I, I overheard something this week that was absolutely beautiful. Um, Cassie was sitting in our little kitchen area with, uh, with Becky and... Um, and Kaya, I think, and, and Kaya was sitting here, I mean, uh, yeah, Kaya was sitting here kind of fiddling with mom's hand or whatever, and Cassie made this observation. She's six years old. Just, wow, mommy, look at how different you and Kaya are. And she was looking at Kaya's exceedingly dark, beautiful skin and my wife's light-colored skin right up next to each other. And my wife just wisely said this, yeah, but look at how much we're the same. Look at our little, you know, knuckles, and look at our fingernails, and look at, we all have this. And she just started to unpack all these similarities. And I'm sitting in the kitchen just kind of, I don't know, doing dishes or sitting there and hearing this and going, wow, what, what a picture that is of how much the same we are. And, and the fact that now Kaya is taking on traits, character traits of our family is just the family process. That's what happens when you walk with a family, when you're in a family. Think about this, Christian. I could sit and think about all the different ways that I am from God, right? And I'm not saying that we achieve God-likeness. However, Christ is being formed in his children. So what a beautiful thing to start noticing in one another and noticing in yourself Christ-like characteristics and treasuring that as saying, God, I really am in your family. I see these fruit. I see these evidence in this. Let's spur one another on to keep that up. Now, we're going to spend more time on the tongue and personal holiness in James, but we're, we're, we're going to focus this morning mostly on widow and orphan care, just because this passage is, uh, is so, so puts that forward. 
Now, we pattern our care after the care we've received from God. So, some of your translations, I think, say, visit orphans and widows in their distress. Some say visit it in their affliction. Some say care for uh, orphans and widows. What I want to do is this. I want to say, you know, let's not be lawyer-like. There's a lawyer that comes up and completely complicates this whole story that Jesus tells um, about fulfilling the great commandment and loving one another as ourself. And he goes, well, let's get technical. Who's my neighbor, right? What does Jesus do? He tells him a story. Right? So he starts to tell them the story of the Good Samaritan. What happens is, what we, what we want to do sometimes is we want to create some self-excuse. We want to create some loophole for us. So what does caring really look like? What is caring and visiting? I have visited orphans. I went to Mexico six years ago, right? I have cared for orphans in their, in their distress. Check. I've kind of checked that off. Rather, let's take a look um, at, at, a, at a broader picture and see what kind of care does God want from Christians? That's, that's what a, a Christian wants to know. What kind of care should we be offering to this? What does that look like? Now, I don't have, I'm not going to give you specifics for your life, but I want to give you some scripture and point you to some things that I think will kind of clue us in a little bit. Here's the first one. Um, hey, there's a popsicle. Here it is. Um, our care is moved only by need. Look at Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. When you think about yourself as an outcast, when you think about yourself as someone who's vulnerable, when you think about yourself as an orphan, and the fact that God came and loved on you and cared for you, he did so not because he was moved by repayment that you could offer. You know what that frees us up from this morning right at the outset? Oh, wow, the preacher's going to guilt me into doing more stuff for God. I don't want you to do stuff for God. We said this bluntly last week. Your very life depends on not doing stuff for God, as if we could repay what he's done for us. That is not what it's talking about. Rather, his care was motivated for the joy that was set before him. God's stirred motive moves us to meet needs, irregardless of, of whether... Uh, the, the person is deserving, irregardless of whether the person is, is able to somehow pay us back. We're not looking for that. Thinking about an orphan or a widow, and I'm going to add, actually, um, I'm going to add someone to, to, our, to our group. Uh, a few years ago, probably 10 years ago now, maybe, I don't know, um, I felt like God prompted me to begin to, to read through the Bible that year through the lens of looking for orphans and widows um, as I, as I read through the scripture. And as I did that, here's what I saw. I saw orphans and widows popping up all over the scriptures. We're going to touch on a few verses today, but go start doing some research just on those two categories. And a third category so rose to the surface that it, that it actually altered the way that I led our college ministry at the previous church I was at. The third category is foreigners or aliens or strangers. The word aliens is the coolest, because as you're reading it, it just sends your mind spinning. But um, the orphan and the widow and the stranger amongst you are all through the scriptures, that we're to care for them, that we're to be leading the charge in defending them, in loving on them. And I thought about the, the things that they have in common. They're weak, they're needy, they can't pay you back. And if I could summarize that in one word, it would be this. They're vulnerable, aren't they? They're vulnerable to some kind of attack. They're vulnerable to someone coming in and taking God-given things from them and having no one else stand up and, and help them. 
Not only that, in many countries and in many nuances, ours included, this is not only not frowned upon, but legal and expected. So just reading through our history books, we can see orphans and widows and strangers abused, bullied, stolen from, killed, kicked, right? Robbed. Totally legal. Not only that, but socially acceptable. Not only that, but religiously accepted. Until a prophet like James will rise up. Until a prophet like William Wilberforce that I talked about last week will rise up. And you just read these voices that God stirs up and says, Enough! It's not my heart. This is wrong. This is sin. So, uh, just in adding that category, uh, I read through the scriptures and I was amazed to see how much it was in there. It's not just a few nuanced uh, verses in the Bible. And I began to wonder, I love the churches I was brought up in, but I began to wonder, why is this not more prominent in my church? Why do I not hear more about this? Why on earth aren't people pulling their hair out, realizing this is going on worldwide? And of course, anytime you think that way, pray that way, and it's in the Spirit, and the Lord's talking, guess what happens? It comes right back to you. (laughs) Right? Isn't it so easy to point to church leaders and point to you know, government, and someone should be doing something about this. You pray that long enough, and God will turn, turn that back on yourself. And you'll realize, wow, I need to start being the answer to my own prayer. Our college ministry literally changed complete form because of the fact that I realized that the largest number of international students west of the Mississippi were at De Anza College, a mile from Valley Church, where I was the college pastor. God's got to put it real simple for me. He's got to just make it like, connect the dots. You know, it's a straight line down Stelling Road. There you go. And all of a sudden, a whole world of need opened up um, and, and, uh, and things got oriented that way. All right, so moved by, moved by need and not moved by anything else. Secondly, looking at our care and what it looks like, it's costly. John 15, 12 says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Once again, if he left it at love one another, we go, cool, I got that. I had people over for a barbecue last night. I'm good. And then we read, as I have loved you. Imagine this, Jesus is saying this before the cross. Can you imagine after Pentecost and just the disciples thinking back and going, what? The new commandments that we love one another the same way Christ loved us. Listen to how he goes on. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Man, hearing those words pre-cross and after the cross and resurrection must have blown their minds. And they say, man, we get it. Man, the call is so much bigger, so much greater. We need God so much more than we ever thought we did before. Because we were loving on people before we thought. We thought that laying your life down thing was kind of a cute metaphor. It wasn't. Spend yourself for the sake of others. Man. Here's the question. Who specifically are you laying your life down for today? Who is it? And this is just a good personal inventory thing. If the answer is your name, write your name down. Say, God, change this in me. This can't be right. Who is it that we're laying our life down for specifically? It's motivated by need, it's costly, and it's bold. God is on the side of those uh, that we help and so we get to move victoriously. Here it is. Look at verse uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.20. It says this. 
for the kingdom of God, I'm messing things up. Uh, for the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. Let me ask you this. If God is on the side of helping those who are vulnerable, and you are stirred up by God to go and help the vulnerable, should you have any fear? No. Do you have fear? Yes. Is there growth needed in that gap? Absolutely. Do you see why we're to pray without ceasing? I mean, this stirs up ceaseless prayer. Not as a chore, like, oh, i got to pray more. But, a, but as in, uh, man, I'm in this situation, and God, I need help right now. You've promised to give wisdom generously. Need it right now. You're praying, right? You're moving. You're going to hear some stories, hopefully later on, from some people who are, who are involved in some of these things uh, that, that I hope will, will, will blow your mind. Ask them. Ask them, hey, what are you doing in this? How has, how has, has God had to, to, to come through for you? Um, I, I rolled this thought around in my own brain for myself and for our church, and it's this. Our faith is far too tame. Just listen to Acts 17 for a second, okay? And just think about our church. Now, I think our church is fantastic, and I actually, uh, I actually talk about you often, and, and with, not with pride, but with, yeah, with pride in saying, you know, the, 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 the things that go on in our church, I love what, what, what God is doing. And yet there's more. There's so much more. Listen to Acts 17. And when they, the jealous Jews, you can read about it in verse 5, could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come down here also. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Now, I don't know when the last time it was that you housed a visiting missionary, a traveling evangelist, or some ministry partner, and city authorities came, and they couldn't find them in your house, but they knew that you were housing them, so they dragged you out to court before the city officials, and a mob has been stirred up, and they're shouting at you, and they're really disturbed that you're a Christian. Upholding good manners, being really nice people, preaching the word always and using words if necessary, that doesn't get people shouting at you from the city officials. It just doesn't, right? That's not controversial at all. You will probably get maybe noticed, maybe not, maybe applauded, maybe not, but you won't get thrown in jail and you certainly won't be accused of turning the world upside down. So when I read that in Acts, I say, okay, God, we're not looking to just go out and and stir things up, so what's the difference? Think about this, caring for orphans and widows or foreigners in prayer, in feeding, and in visiting, right? Three key areas that they have need of is not controversial. I think all three of those things are needed. But as I thought about the boldness and the power that we need to live God's life, I think about this, you don't really need power to do that so much. You do to sustain it over a lifetime and a career. But God, where's this power that's, that's needed? And where's this boldness, bold, boldness that is needed? Why were the people in the New Testament beaten and run off? Here's what I think it is. I think it's because they were mimicking the love and the care of a specific trait of God. One of the things God is for us is this. He's a rescuer. God's our rescuer, Right? I mean, doesn't God rescue us from sin, from death? What did he have to do to rescue us? 
he had to go to battle, right? He had to go up against an enemy. Listen to this. Lest we think that just visiting an orphan and a widow is all that the Bible's talking about, get a more robust picture of what God demands of our care of them. Listen to this, Isaiah 117. Learn to do good. Catch this, it's not a natural, normal thing. You, you have to learn this. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. As I looked at these words, seek and correct and bring justice and plead, I realized this. Those are fighting different kinds of enemies that face the poor and the outcasts and the vulnerable of the world. Here are some of the vulnerabilities that they have. Hunger and drought and poverty and disease and hopelessness. Those are all enemies that face a widow and an orphan and a, and a foreigner, right? The vulnerable. But there's another enemy that they face that's different altogether, and it's violence. It's bullies coming in and taking things from them. And it's a different kind of enemy because of this. If you go in, Christian, and say, I'm going to help this person with being lonely, then you're visiting them. I'm going to go in and help them by bringing them food or water. Those enemies are similar in that they don't fight back. You know what violence does? It's a different kind of enemy because it fights back. You go in and you try to help a person who's enslaved to someone, and that's their livelihood, they're going to push back. Now, that wells up fear in most of us. It goes against sensibilities. Well, what's the good in that? That sounds really scary and really risk-taking. I've got mouths to feed. All of a sudden, the power that we see, the fact that walking with God isn't a lot of talk but requires power, begins to make sense. Defend the cause of the orphan stirs up the idea of justice. There's something called the International Justice Mission, started by a guy named Gary Haugen. He was a successful lawyer. And he took his successful lawyer career, and he said this, enough with it. I'm done doing that. I've got, I've got word that there are children around the world who are enslaved today. And he started to go after 15 years ago. Not right now when it's kind of hot to go after sex trading and, and international trafficking and Terrible things are going on, and he's kind of peaking right now. This was 15 years ago. He said, I'm going to take that, and not only that, I'm going to call some of my DA friends and some of the people. And he started this international justice mission. Um, I'm just wrapping up for the second time reading a book called Just Courage. Highly recommend it. It's a great book. And in this book, he outlines some of the things that operatives for his foundation do. They go in posing as businessmen, and they get these kids out of there. Not only that, they bring these people to court, and they have to stand accountable for being rapists and stand accountable for being um, slaveholders. Today, here's what they report. 27 million people today, 27 million are held in slavery around the world. Dateline NBC, 60 Minutes, Bill O'Reilly, Oprah, they've all reported on this guy's heroic efforts. You don't hear about this a ton. This is buried somewhat. But here's a guy that for 15 years has been going after people with litigation and, and causing real change. He uses this term that he changes the fear equation from the bully picking on the vulnerable to all of a sudden having someone come in and saying this. The thing that they fear the most is, catch this, the truth. 
Because when the truth comes out, they will go to jail and it will change their behavior. And that's what's happening. Uh, I've got websites that you can go to kind of get, get more of a vibe on some of this. But, but what if our children who want to be lawyers are raised to be lawyers to go out and seek justice in these parts of the world that are going on? By the way, this isn't a global phenomenon. It's happening right here as well. That's one of the fronts that, that precious too few dollars are going, are, are, are going toward. I think he cited this fact that of every $10 that's going to world relief, hunger and disease and clean water and all of that, $1 is going toward this justice part of it. Here's the equation that you have to start thinking about, that maybe eight of those dollars are going straight to funding bullies sometimes. That's why you have to know where your money's going, right? Makes sense? Because if the money's just coming in, relief is coming in, but it's never getting to the people and it's not stopping people from enslaving others, it, it can become a vicious cycle. Now, I have laid out just kind of the scriptures and kind of the call that I think there's more for us. Here's what I want to do now. I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to just, I want to just call out some, some things. Um, in the little brackish water here, but between that and, and where we're headed with some actual action steps and some things God's done here in this place, um, let me just say this. Jesus issues a call. He says, come and follow me. Some of our responses are this. How far, though? That was, that was definitely what I wrestled with when I, was, when I was hesitant to take a step toward Jesus. How far is this going to go, Jesus? You read the scriptures and you realize this. Those that he said, come and follow me, he led them on a three-year adventure that led to his death and their death. Tons of highlights that we read about. Good points, meals together, right? Miracles. But that was the call and that was the journey that he led them on. And he's called us and he said, uh, come and follow me. For many people, it's not far out of the comfort zone that we follow. I want you just to put your pen down, note down, and just listen for a second to some scripture. I'm going to read from Isaiah 58, and I want you to listen to, kind of listen for worthless religion here, and then think about pure and undefiled, priceless religion as I lay this out. The shocking reality about what God expects from us us in worship is not that it's so vague, but that it's so pointedly clear. Listen to this as we sit in the USA. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. We have fasted, they say, and you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on your day of fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. Contrast that with this. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now listen to the results of that kind of worship. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call on the, and, and, and the Lord will answer you. Um, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, uh, the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become as noonday. God help us as a church not be clanging cymbals and gongs in the ears of our God as we just sing and just for a day come and somehow put on a show. But rather let this be the culmination of a week of worship and the launch pad of what's ahead this coming week where we desperately need to be with the people of God to hear the truth of God proclaimed, to sing and lift our hearts and our voices, to stop and pray collectively as a community as we seek the Lord. I wonder if church for you feels like Groundhog Day ever. The same thing over and over and over. There are times I've been bored with church. I'm sure you have too. It's times like that when I realize, you know what? I don't. There's nothing in my life I need God for right now, and that's that's horribly off track. We just sang this. God, stir in me a passion for things that aren't there in and of themselves. I'm going to invite Rob and Ben up, and um, and we're going to sing a story, uh, a sing kind of a story song in just a second. Sometimes the things that stir in us begin with with a, a still, small, quiet voice or a dream almost. Middle school Becky was, um, was having a picture and a thought in her mind about what she'd like to have as a family one day, and she envisioned a table full of kids looking back at her, and the faces were different colors. When I married Becky, I thought, man, I've always admired Becky for that dream. I always thought she had neat dreams for those kind of less fortunate. It never really dawned on me that as her husband, that would include me in that. And so what happened was God began to work on me. And and my wife is not a nagging woman, but she passionately wanted this. And she kept pressing on. And and I, I was kind of bracing for it, but I was fearful and not courageous marching toward it. And I'll tell you what my tiny step of faith was like. Um, I was really wrestling with God about this. And I thought, God, you want me leading churches. You want me doing these things. You want me pouring into other people to do this, not me. My wife said this. My wife, my wife said, Dave, there's a conference coming up um, about adoption. And I want you to come with me. And let's go to this together. And almost, I think, more for my wife than out of worship to God or some heroic effort on my part. But it was just this. It was like, okay, I'll go to a conference. It was a step. That's all it was. I went to the conference, and I did not expect my life to change radically in that moment. But here's what happened. I couldn't tell you a single thing that people talked about. All the workshops I went through, I remember a couple of things. But all that conference did was raise more question and more doubt that we could ever do this adoption thing. But what happened as a result of that conference was this. I heard from God, and here's what he said. Lead your family in this. I'm calling your family to adopt a child from 
another place. Get out in front. That's a scary call, especially when I just went to eight hours worth of things that we can't possibly do. And that one conference, that one step of faith, the gentle prayer and pleading and longing of my wife's heart led me to that. I want to call up to the stage right now the clinks, but I can't because they're not here. So instead, I'll just put their picture up. Real time in our church right now. This was last week. They landed back in California with Sarah Rose. I said last week that we can be intimidated sometimes by the vast numbers. 15 million orphans in the world. That's a lot. 500,000 tonight that will sleep in an institution instead of their own bed. That's terrible. What could I possibly do? I think boiling it down to one is the way to go. Because Sarah Rose needed a family, the clinks inconvenienced themselves and they just followed when Jesus said, follow me. And they got on a plane and they picked up Sarah Rose and the clinks are now four strong and little Joe's got a sister. Here's what I know about the clinks from personal experience. They cannot do this alone. I tell people, anytime you want to talk about adoption, that's one of the first things out of my wife and I's mouth. You cannot do this alone. And many of your own family will, will, may not be supportive in it because it's not very rational to do these things. You will get all kinds of battle about your jipping your own kids and all kinds of weird comments from your biological family sometimes. That's why a church family, I'll say thank you. We have felt supported at every turn. And I'm looking at face after face and some that I don't even know how you've supported us, but you have. We've not done it alone. The clinks can't do it alone. If God's calling this to you, know that you're not alone. He will provide as you take steps of obedience. As we sing this song, we're going to pull the clinks off. Uh, uh, actually, do we even have words for this, Carl, or no? Okay. Go ahead and put the words up. Think about the clinks as we, as we sing.
long years The loneliness ends And a new life begins When love takes you in Somewhere while you're sleeping else is dreaming too Counting down the days until They hold you close and say I love you And like the rain that falls into the sea In a moment what has been is lost In what will be When love takes you in And everything changes A miracle starts With the beat of a heart And this love will never let you go There is nothing that could ever cause this love to lose its hold. When love takes you in, everything changes. Starts with the beat of a heart when love takes you home, says you belong here. The loneliness ends and a new life begins when love. Takes you in for good when love takes you in. Man, when love takes you in and says you belong here. Isn't that an awesome line? I saw a bumper sticker yesterday that said this. It said, a world of wanted children would make a world of difference. I thought, man, what if every kid had that deep sense, no matter how their life started or how, what trajectory it was on, they had a deep sense that they were wanted and cared for and longed for. Uh, I want to just start sharing with you a couple of things that uh, that are going on right now. A couple of uh, uh, we had something that we called show hope, 
And uh, my wife and I were at this World Vision thing. Many people in our church had already sponsored kids through World Vision and Compassion International, and I knew that was going on. But all of a sudden, there was this, there was this thought and idea about doing a block sponsorship where we, could, where we could sponsor kids from the same region, and how cool would that be? Uh, and, um, and so uh, I signed up for it, and they said, basically they said, plan on about 10% of your church participating. And I sat there, and even when I heard that, I thought, not our church. I said, 10%, no way. We'll, we'll get more than that. I know there's already people sponsoring, but we'll get more than that. So of a church roughly of 100 adults on a given Sunday, that should be about 10 of you that would have responded to that. Being the great man of faith that I am, I, I, wanted, I asked for 25 cards. I said, we'll do 25. That will be our goal. So we had a little Africa continent over here, and when we hit 25, that was like our thermometer, and all through the month of December that year, that was going to be our thermometer, and we were going to gun for 25 kids. And so on that Sunday, some of you were here, and you won't ever forget it, but we had hung faces of kids, and instead of sending me 25 so that there would be a lot of choice, they actually sent me 40 cards. So I hung up 20 cards over here and 20 cards over here. And in that service, we began to sing and play and pray and watch some videos and just let God move in our hearts. And I remember after a couple of songs, I was up here singing. I had my eyes closed and I opened my eyes and I couldn't believe what I was looking at. What I realized is there were a couple of cards left over here. If someone took a card, they were committing to care for that kid. And then I looked over here and the other side was obliterated. It was totally gone. So not only were 40 kids in one Sunday gobbled up by this church, but I actually went and got more, and 44 kids right now in the southwestern corner, and I found out when I went there, it's one of the most remote, hardest places to get to in Ethiopia, um, are being supported by you people right here. And they're on our refrigerators, they're on our bulletin boards, they're, they're, they're places in, in, our, in our lives. That's something that God stirred up and moved in you. Here's some other things that are going on. Every year, um, uh, there are some homeless people around us that we are going to. Uh, this Thanksgiving, uh, we will once again go to people in San Francisco and minister to them and work with them. Um, our youth now have multiple times been down to St. James Park. At assorted times in our history, God said, you're not going enough, evidently, to the homeless people. So he brought them here. And that's an amazing story that I won't even take time to do or tell you about. But they were welcomed in here and got to hear the word of God and participate in the things of God. Uh, there's something called the Help One Child Christmas Party that many of you have been a part of. It's, help, it's, it's put on for the foster kids in our local area. It was born in the heart of the Rose family years and years ago, and it's a way to be par- participating in local foster care. That has gone on every year uh, that this church has been going on and long before that. Mexico is something that God put on our hearts. There's an orphanage in Mexico right across the border that we now go to two to three times a year to go visit and minister to. They become our friends. We don't think of them just as orphans or an orphanage. We're going to visit our friends. And uh, by the way, today, that meeting that's going on, uh, there will be opportunity to, to act on that. Um, uh, there's also um, just an assortment of things that, that go on. As you go on a neighborhood workabout, you are probably helping orphans and widows uh, vicariously through that. We have a, a garden in the back here that we're looking for God to breathe fresh, fresh vision into. That's always been for those in our community who are vulnerable. That's the point of it. That's been the purpose of it from day one. 
There are many services and visits that have gone on to a convalescent home right down the street here and another one about a half a mile down this way. Now, these are just some, some different things that God has done in our midst. Let me give you some very specific, right now kinds of action things. As you walked in today, you probably saw some different kind of icons on the wall. We have six of them. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to dismiss church very soon. And I'm dismissing early for this point. In a couple of moments, there's going to be someone standing next to each of these. I'm going to walk through them with you so you can kind of understand what they are. But what these are meant to do is this. They are meant to allow you to do this. Not hear from God and hear from God's word and say, I need to pray about that some more. I need to think on that some more. How many times have I done that and then two weeks later I go, oh man, I never did something with that. The prayer is this, take the next step, whatever it is right now. Maybe you're eyeball deep in this. Persevere. Maybe that's the next step. God, you're still calling me to this. I still cry at the song and the videos. This is still right where you have me. We're on the right track. Praise God. For some people, a couple of years ago, signing on when they couldn't afford $35 a month to do that for a kid was a first step. Maybe that's been going along swimmingly. It's been sacrificial. But maybe God's saying, no, 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 there's so much more. You can do that in your flesh. There's more for you. In the very back, Jenny Cook's going to be back there handling a writing station for our kids in Ethiopia. There are 44 children. You may have your kid that you already know the name of because you pray for and you think about it and all that. Write them a note today. Don't delay on that. We'll get that, we'll get that mailed in or you can mail it in. If you didn't sponsor a kid but you want to write a message, just a a message, a general message to, to the kids, come back there and do it. Grab your kids and color a picture. Stickers are back there. It's a message saying, we love you. We care about you. You're not forgotten in that corner of the world. Uh, next one to the right over here is just local widow care. And the way we're kind of attaching to that is Love, Inc. Many of you know what Love, Inc. is, but if you don't, you're going to go back and find out about it. Maybe you have filled out a talent survey in the past but haven't done so in 2012. Just to let you know, we clear those out every year. So we have less talent surveys this year than we have the previous couple of years. That means we've missed some of you, probably that are willing servants, but it's starting to tax the few that have filled out a talent survey. So if you haven't filled out a talent survey or don't have a clue what that is, but want to help in meaningful ways to local widows, go back to that corner and find that icon. Uh, the next one is foster care. The Rose family are... They are frontline, long-term foster care advocates and helpers, warriors, really. Um, they've got some cool in-the-trenches stories that will just be phenomenal. It, just, it will stir your imagination of what that can be like. But if you want to know how to plug in and help with foster care, you need to go over to this one. Up front here is Mexico and helping orphans right across the border. Uh, Jonathan's going to be up front here not just talking about the Mexico trip. Don't write it off as because you can't ever get time off to go down there that there aren't ways to help and care and be involved with GCH, Grace Children's Home and Grace Babies Home. Let me give you the last two. Uh, this one is for international students. And I'm going to be standing up here. There is a world of ways to help international students from going and picking them up at the airport with that little sign that says, you know, you or whoever the, the, the uh, person's 
you, as in YU. That was a Japanese student. There's ways to go just do airport pickups to coming and, and, and helping out hosting a table to all kinds of things you can do to welcome in the, the foreigner amongst us. And finally, my lovely wife will be back here talking about adoption. The clinks uh, with domestic adoption and Becky with international adoption are very well-researched people. If you want to know, where's a website I should start off with? What are some next steps? What's it really like about adopting? Come and talk to my wife. She will love to talk about it with you. I will as well. I'm going to pray right now. We're going to take up the offering. The band's going to sing. When Rob dismisses you, you are being dismissed to one of these buttons. So let's do that. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you, God, for your clear word that when you say be doers of the word, you don't just leave us floundering to wonder what that is. God, I thank you that you have provided technology and information now that real time we get to know and understand and not be in ignorance about what's going on in this world. I thank you, God, that for those of us who've had those moments where we're shocked and we say, I can't believe this is going on. I thank you, God, for the accountability that comes with not being able to say, I just didn't know anymore. God, would you raise up an army in this building of people that will go to the battlefield, will go and proactively seek out ways to care with the care that we've received from you. And God, I thank you that as we give money, it's a statement that money doesn't control us. We're stewards of our money as we're stewards of our health, as we're stewards of all that you've given to us. Lord, that we'd use it to lift up Christ and advance the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.